Welcome to the 7220 Wadcast, where the content will always be constantly varied and at times highly intense, with as many guests as possible. Hello and welcome to episode number one of the 7220 Wadcast. My name is Nicole Bleak and I'll be your host for this first and hopefully not the last installment. It will likely come as no surprise that our topic today is COVID-19. We realize that there is an overwhelming amount of information circulating on a daily basis on this topic, but we thought it might be helpful to consult a trusted local source who can hopefully shed a little bit of light on how this relates to us here in Laramie, Wyoming. So today I'm here with Dr. John Haberly, who has graciously agreed to answer a few questions that hopefully represent the concerns of many in our area. Dr. Haberly is a local physician who has been in practice for 20 years, 11 of those years right here in Laramie. He is board certified in both family medicine and lipidology. John and his wife Yvette, who is also a physician, are both very fit members of our CrossFit 7220 community. And no worries, we are socially distancing today and not visiting in person. Welcome, John, and thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, Yvette and I sure miss uh, going to CrossFit, so this is a nice uh, nice update for, for us to be able to, to talk to the whole crowd. Yes, we are really missing everyone as well. I thought we'd begin with a few general questions regarding COVID-19 before we get into some more specifics about the Laramie area. So this pandemic has been a bit of a crazy ride for everybody. It seems like things change very quickly. Three weeks ago, I think we were told not to wear masks, save them for healthcare workers, or only wear them if you're sick, and now it seems like we're being told to wear them whenever we go out. Why do recommendations change so quickly and drastically? What we're dealing with here is, is an entirely new disease, and there's new information that comes out all the time, and so this is a chance to get to watch how science works in real time, which which is a little bit scarier than uh, realizing that most of the recommendations we have for health are really based on years and decades of, of uh, close research. And so I would just ask that people be a little bit patient and a little bit nimble in uh, this and, and try to realize that recommendations are going to change. This is a very fluid situation. If we were in the military, we would say uh, this is a, a very dynamic battlefield. Things change quickly, and we have to make uh, rapid changes, which which can be confusing to the frontline troops, right? But uh, but I don't see any way around that. So I would just urge people to be patient and to try to stay as up to date as they can. What are some trusted resources or websites that offer some reputable information? Well, I, I think there's. A number of them, obviously the CDC.gov and then our own state, uh, Wyoming uh, Department of Health, offers some pretty good basic recommendations and also updates on what's happening both locally and regionally and, and around the country and, and really around the world. There's another website out of the University of Minnesota that I would bring up and it's called CIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P. And uh, if you just type that into Google, you'll get some really up-to-date um, information that is not biased and that is evidence-based anyway. Uh, these are 
These are the people who originally noticed coronavirus being a problem, and they have been on the money on their uh, predictions ever since the get-go. So I really put a lot of trust in uh, the people at the University of Minnesota. Um, I think also now might be a time that we could talk about the University of Washington and their predictions. Yes, if anyone wants to follow along, I'll put the link with the show notes, but it's covid19.healthdata.org. And if you go there, it's very interesting. You might want to spend 15 minutes there going through the different states and different uh, countries and looking at projected uh, impact. It looks like on the Wyoming numbers that the number infected isn't expected to peak until the last part of April or even the first part of May. But uh, clear up at the top of the screen, you can see a purple line. That's the number of hospital beds that we have. And the dotted purple line is the number of hospital beds that we would be expected to need. And so it looks like we're going to have plenty of capacity for that. The green or the purple shaded area is sort of the 95% confidence interval that we're, we're 95% sure that the number of hospital beds needed is going to be within that purple shaded area. This modeling data is different than a lot of the models that you see in that it's updated based on real-time data. So, so what we know about COVID in New York or in Wyoming or in any state uh, is fed into the machine and so it's adjusted for what we're actually seeing, not based on numbers from a month ago or something like that. Keep in mind that all of these projections, all of them count on social distancing proceeding through the month of May. So if we distance well through the month of May, that would be the 95% the chance that something like this would, would happen anyway. Um, so, so this will be good, but it does mean that we're going to have to keep up with this distancing business for a bit longer. So you see the, the total deaths are going to peak well after the peak of the disease. And that's because uh, for people who die from COVID, it generally takes about two or three weeks of struggling. Um, so it's a particularly mean disease in that way. Uh, people who die from COVID generally don't die real quickly. Of course, we hear on the news of people that that happens to, but, but the average is about two or three weeks after they're infected. And, uh, and it's quite a struggle during that time, of course. So when there are people dying, why do treatments like hydroxychloroquine need to be tested so thoroughly before we can just give them to everyone who gets infected? Well, uh, first of all, you should know that Quinn and hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin are being used. And um, physicians are pretty, pretty comfortable with the idea of using drugs without FDA approval. We do it all the time. I do it every day. But... I think we also have to keep in mind that when we do that, there's a, there's a substantial risk. Um, I like to think that I can weigh that risk against the benefit, uh, but in truth, it's a, it's a difficult line to walk. If we're talking about treating minor problems, maybe that's not that big of a deal. But if we're talking about treating a major problem affecting a very large part of the population, now, the, the price we're guessing wrong gets much higher. So 
I would just caution people to be a little bit skeptical on this hydroxychloroquine business. It's, um, it's hopefully going to be useful. I really pray that it'll be useful, but, um, but I don't think we have the confidence to say that it's useful just yet. So let's hope that in a few weeks we know a little bit more about that and that we can say there's, there's a good treatment. Even if there is a treatment, it's pretty clear it's not a cure. And so um, it's going to be part of the answer. But I think people who are relying on this to be the complete answer may be fooling themselves. So could I just call a doctor and get a prescription for a Z-Pack so I have it on hand in case I get infected? Please don't, because there are people who do benefit from those drugs for being treated for things like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, lupus or something like that. They definitely get a, a benefit from this. And if we all hoard it, then uh, these people are going to suffer, um, and perhaps needlessly. So that will add to the the negative consequences of using a drug that we don't know much of, that we don't know helps the condition that we're treating. Let's say. So, uh, so please don't ask your uh, doctor for a prescription. I, I had that just yesterday. Um, a, a very nice patient who has some lung problems uh, said he was just scared, and he said, "Can I just start taking this stuff because?" I got to go to the grocery store. Nobody else can go to the grocery store for me. And I'm scared to death I'm going to die someday. You know, unfortunately, um, I think if I had prescribed that, basically what I would be doing is I would be giving him some false reassurance. And, and that's a real dangerous thing because then what would he be likely to do? He'd be likely to um, maybe let down his barriers on social distancing. He may be a little more likely to ignore risk and think that he was protected, and um, I don't think that's the I don't think that's the business that I want to be in is giving false reassurance. So we do keep hearing that those most affected are elderly or obese, people with diabetes, but then we also hear about these cases where there are young people dying with no underlying medical issues, or at least none they knew about. Are those just outliers, or is the effect of the virus really just random? Well, first of all, I'd say I think it's still a pretty vague idea of who is affected. It does seem like the people dying generally tend to be older, and the people dying generally tend to have some sort of medical condition underlying. That said, um, I think it's really early to say that for sure, and we got to keep in mind that the people who don't die still spread the disease. And so even if you're young and healthy and you think you're not at risk for dying, you are at risk for making other people die. And uh, I think that's in, in some ways almost worse, right? Because um, one healthy person who spreads it can actually cause the hospitalization or, or death of multiple others, whereas uh, one person dying is just one person dying. The other thing to keep in mind is that some of these medical conditions that are associated with death from COVID are really pretty benign conditions like asthma or um, high blood pressure. I have asthma. I have high blood pressure. I take medications for both. And um, I consider myself pretty healthy. I'm only 52. I consider myself young. But it turns out I'm actually an old person with multiple medical problems in the COVID scheme of things. And, and that, that's a hard thing for me to wrap my head around, but it's true. 
I want to think that's not true. I want to think that somehow my goodwill and my good uh, health efforts have made some sort of difference, but we don't really have any evidence for that. So, so I can't really be very confident in my, um, my optimism for me. So, so for me, I'm trying to avoid this stuff. Yeah, so are you wearing a mask in your clinic, out in public? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I don't go out in public anymore. <laughs> I go here or I'm at the office. Uh, I, we have decided that uh, since Yvette doesn't have asthma and she doesn't have high blood pressure, she's going to be our grocery shopper. Uh, she's going to go uh, get the, uh, the wine and the horse supplies and all of the essential things for the Haverly household, right? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> joke. But, um, but in the clinic, um, do I wear a mask there? At this point, I'm not, and I would point back to that uh, website from Minnesota called FIDRAP for that excellent article there from some experts on how to protect yourself from uh, droplet and airborne diseases. So I don't on a routine basis do that. I would say if I see a patient who I have suspicions about having um, COVID, uh, then I am going to protect myself completely with eye coverings, uh, coverings on all my skin, like my hands, and, um, and then I'll, of course, have an N95 mask. I, I want to make this really clear. Although we know the disease spreads through droplets and through aerosols, dose matters. In, in other words, the longer you're around someone who has COVID, the higher the chances that you're going to pick it up. The likelihood seems to increase some, somewhere around 15 minutes to 30 minutes. So that's a long time, really. So if I'm in a room with someone and we're comfortably distant from each other physically, and I'm only in there for five minutes before I start to get the suspicion that, uh-oh, this person might have COVID, I'm not going to panic. I'm going to calmly stand up and say, excuse me, I need to go get some protective covering on. But, but I'm not going to panic because I just happen to be in the same room and breathing the same air with them. Yeah, you can get infected that way. And uh, the, the, like I said, the dose seems to have a threshold of around 15 minutes or so with somebody, 30 minutes maybe. So quite a long time. And it matters, of course, how much that person is coughing, sneezing, breathing um, in that time, right? If they're casually sitting there and they don't have a cough, that's not a, that's not a high risk situation. If I'm talking about doing tests or sticking uh, tubes in a person's nose and I'm likely to get sprayed with whatever, yeah, that's a really high risk situation. Right now, I don't need to do that for 15 minutes to realize the dose of risk that I just uh, just brought on. So, so keep in mind, um, it is important to protect yourself, but um, casual mistaking contact with someone who has COVID don't need to be panic time if they're not extended. Well, and I think it's important to note too that putting on a mask doesn't make us invincible. It's my understanding that in an N95 mask, the 95 part of that means that it's 95% effective or it blocks out 95% of the, the air contaminants. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and um, fit matters. So as we hit the peak here, and I expect to start using a N95 more, I'm going to have to rethink about my facial hair. 
And also, um, uh, you need to be fit tested to be real confident about that 95 business. Now, in this setting, are we all going to be able to be fit tested? Nope, not going to happen. Uh, so, um, so it's probably going to be less than 95. We're going to be sitting around within 75s, right? Um, so I think that should keep everybody in the mindset of, hey, yeah, I have personal protective equipment, but it's not perfect. I still need to be thinking about my time exposure, my distance exposure, um, and, uh, and other exposures like my eyes and my nose and my skin. So shifting gears a little bit, I think people outside of the medical community will say things like, oh, don't worry, they'll have a vaccine in a couple of months. You know, there's scientists working on it. From what I understand, mm -hmm. that's not the case. And the soonest we could have a vaccine would be a year if we were lucky. Um, why does it take so long to develop a vaccine? Although it's easy to make a vaccine, it's really hard to tell if it's going to be effective. There have been cases where uh, like with the dengue virus, where vaccines were developed, but actually actually made things worse, actually made the people more susceptible to that particular virus. So I think we need to be really careful about this. Most people don't realize how long it takes to make a vaccine. It usually takes decades to make a vaccine safe and effective. Um, like whole careers are built around single vaccines. Um, the shortest time frame from beginning to to end for a vaccine was the mumps vaccine and that took four years so if we're talking about one year for this uh, this vaccine i mean that's just staggeringly fast there will be a vaccine someday but it'll be any time soon but it's not going to get us out of this current problem at all so for those of us who are generally healthy if we get a fever or a cough should we run out and get tested or should we save those tests for people that aren't as healthy? Or is it better for us to know so that we know whether we need to self-isolate even amongst our own families? Well, the tests aren't perfect. Um, and the, the tests are less perfect in an area where the prevalence is low. It's a complicated mathematical explanation for that. But here's the thing. If you have mild symptoms and you might have it, that's just to isolate. And uh, so since there is somewhat of a deficiency of testing out there, we don't have the test to, uh, to do for everybody, then it's best to consider mild people just assume they have it. Now, how do you know, right? Um, it's like, I'm not a doctor. Well, call your doctor. Um, call your doctor or call the um, hospital or go to the cdc.gov website. And it's actually a pretty simple way to, to walk through a process to sort out whether or not you're at, you're in a likely infected group. And so I just really encourage people that if they have symptoms, give us a call. We're glad to talk to you on the phone and sort out what needs to be done next. So it seems like Wyoming, and in particular Laramie, is behind on the number of cases, number of people hospitalized, et cetera. So in your opinion, does that mean we're keeping the virus at bay or that maybe the worst is yet to come? Well, two things. Uh, first of all, if you look at the graph that we showed earlier, um, it looks like we are still on the very front end of this right in Wyoming right now. So, yeah, the worst is yet to come and probably two or three weeks away. The second thing is, is that, yeah, we're behind in Wyoming. We're far behind. But guess what? We're, we're above average for the 50 states in um, testing per million people. 
Um, yeah. I was I was shocked to learn that. I just, I just learned that yesterday. That's how fast all this changes. I was I thought we must be last. Uh, no, uh, last is Alabama, and um, and you think oh well Alabama yeah that that makes sense. But second to last is Texas in tests per million people. Texas. So um, so it's not really clear how, how how many tests we have compared to everybody else. I think what's important testing increases when disease severity increases. In other words, we're for sure testing the people who are hospitalized. Because we don't have any many people hospitalized with this yet, we're not seeing a lot of test results yet. Um, and same thing with Texas. They're going to bump right up to the top here as soon as they start to peak. Since we are a rural community, it it is likely more important, I guess, that we try to keep it at bay because if we do have an outbreak, we just don't have the medical facilities or the equipment or the personnel to handle a lot of critically ill patients. Yeah, I think you see um, these graphs about how many ICU beds do you have and, and how many ventilators do you have. But one thing we need to keep in mind is how many providers do you have? Um, if, um, if Laramie has one or two of our hospitalists become uh, ill, we've lost almost half of our uh, capacity to take care of these people, no matter how many ventilators we have. True. And so, um, so it's a little bit different. Um, we do have, I guess, less less wiggle room in Wyoming than uh, than we do, say, in uh, New Jersey or New York. Um, the other thing is that um, small communities sometimes have a false sense of reassurance that, hey, we're already isolated. We're from Wyoming, man. We're, we don't see anybody anyway. Yeah, but the, the thing is, is that we, we do live in fairly tight-knit communities, and we do have maybe almost more social connection than uh, some of the other places. Yeah, we don't have subways, but, um, but when things like influenza hit Laramie, they tend to go through um, pretty quickly. I think of it kind of like, like a forest fire. You know, um, we're, we're this little clump of dead trees, right? And if the forest fire goes past us, well, great, we're fine. But if one tree in our little clump uh, gets it, it tends to just go right up. And so anyway, I don't think that we can take a lot of reassurance just from being a, a rural area. What What's your office? What are other medical offices? And what is IMH doing right now to treat those that are symptomatic and to prioritize testing and then to kind of prevent the spread in the facilities amongst patients and healthcare workers? Yeah, so, well, we've all had a crash course on appropriate um, PPE. I, I think one thing that this has done for our medical community is that we're working together a little bit better than we used to, instead of having a bunch of separate offices. And so every week we do get together with um, all the offices in town, including the hospital. Um, I'm not part of the hospital, but, um, but we all try to get together and then sort out um, who is seeing what in the community and what resources are needed where and who can help out and who can't and all that sort of thing. Uh, but for right now, this is a pretty fluid situation. So, so everything changes um, every week. It's just, it's, it's really difficult to keep track of. And so if people are frustrated with um, how quickly things change, I'd say, yeah, you probably have it about right. 
we should be frustrated. Things are changing much faster than any of us like. Um, I, I like a lot more stability in my life, um, and most people are like that. We've all heard that we need to wash our hands, not touch our face, and stay home. Other than those things, you know, what would you say is the best thing we can all do personally to kind of protect ourselves in the event that we do get exposed or infected with COVID-19? Well, I think I would have an action plan. I would have some sort of plan on what would I do if I started to have coughing, fever, body aches, shortness of breath. What would I do if my kid had those symptoms? What would I do if my wife had those symptoms? You can get on social media and you can let people know that this is something that, that they should worry about um, and that you're worried about it. Because uh, I guarantee that for the CrossFitters here, your friends who know you go to CrossFit, they look at you for um, some health-related advice. That doesn't mean they think that you're a doctor, but they do think that you pay attention. And when you show it on social media, um, people say, hmm, maybe I should um, read a little bit more myself. Maybe I should prove my own game at uh, social distancing anyway. Um, so I would just encourage people to know that they have, they have more influence probably than they think they do, and that now is a good time to use that. Finally, I'd say I would, I would try to not forward uh, social media things that sound like scams. Uh, we have patients calling up and asking if um, if they gargle with vinegar, will it make the virus go away? If they if they use a hair dryer in their nose, will it make their hair? And and, and these are perfectly rational questions because how the hell are they supposed to know, right? Um, and it takes time to explain that yeah, that's not a thing. And if it doesn't sound like a thing, it's probably not a thing. I think everyone has heard enough now to know how important nutrition is at this time to avoid a lot of sugar and to eat good food so that our immune system stays robust. What about the role of exercise and trying to preserve the muscle mass we have as CrossFitters? Look at my own finances, I think. I should probably have an emergency fund. I should be able to take care of myself if I have no income for at least a few months um, so I can get back on my feet, right? And I think muscle mass is really kind of the same thing. Uh, you're going to lose muscle mass if you get sick. You're going to lose muscle mass if you don't get to exercise for a, for a few months, too. But, but particularly if you get pneumonia, if you get in a car wreck and you end up in the ICU and have to have an operation, you're going you're gonna to use your emergency fund of muscle. And what's interesting is that there are good studies saying that the more muscle mass a person enters the hospital with, the better their survival chances, regardless of the problem. I think um, there, was a, there was a study that said something like, if you can deadlift your body weight, your chances of dying in the hospital are like practically zip, silch. And so that's a really good thing because that gives people a really easy target, right? Deadlift your body weight. Doesn't sound like a whole um, heck of a lot um, at, when you think about it. It's like something that most people could work up to in a, in a year right? Um, same thing with your finances. You can work up to save three months of, of money within about a year, right? And so um, I, I think this is a good time for everybody to think about their, their so-called disaster preparedness, whether it's physically, financially, or, or any other way.
Well, I thank you for taking time today. Do you have any other last thoughts or comments you want to share before we close the call? I just say stay, stay tuned and uh, buckle up because it's going to be confusing. And if, if you get confused and if you hear conflicting um, words of advice, um, check out those resources or give me a call or give me an email. Um, I'd be glad to help people kind of walk through some of these uh, confusing times. Um, even though, even though I myself might might be pretty confused at that time as well, so try to try to stay in touch with people, and we will get through this, and we'll be back uh, back at CrossFit. I don't know, sometime soon. I hope. We hope so too. We've all got to get back to working on those deadlifts. That's right. All right, John. Thanks. We will hopefully talk again soon, either when this thing gets worse or maybe when it's all over too and we we get into some other subjects. But I really appreciate you taking time today and we hope that you stay healthy and we appreciate your service in this healthcare industry right now. Okay, and by the way, I wanna say I really appreciate CrossFit. It was a hard decision to uh, close the gym, but it was definitely the right one. And uh, you know, in life, you just, you just don't go wrong by making the right decision even when it hurts. So um, I, I, know we'll, I know you'll come out of it um, stronger than you went in. We appreciate that. It was a tough thing to do, but we know it was the right thing. And we will look forward to having you and everyone else back in the gym, hopefully soon. Thank you for listening to the 7220 Wadcast. Stay healthy and stay fit, everyone.